Open your Bibles uh, once again to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19, we'll be looking at the uh, second half of that uh, chapter today. Blaise Pascal, uh, many of you may know, was a brilliant French mathematician and, and physicist and inventor and philosopher. He made a number of uh, meaningful contributions. He invented the first mechanical calculator. He played a key role in the development of probability theory. He helped develop our theories of atmospheric pressure and the use of uh, barometers. He even created the first uh, public transit system, although it went uh, bankrupt like all the others uh, um, after it uh, within a few years. But he was, uh, he was a, an inquisitive mind. He was an active mind. And he put that sort of active mind to thoughts about God as well. These were eventually published in his, um, after his death in a work known as Pensies, his, his thoughts, uh, translated from the French. And in that, he made his uh, famous philosophical argument known as the Great Wager. It isn't so much a, an evangelistic strategy that he was trying to spell out as much as, as an, a philosophical exercise. He, he put forth the notion that we as human beings are in the place of uh, making a monumental bet with our lives, a wager on the existence of God or His non-existence. And he ultimately argues that it's the most rational thing for every human being to do to wager or to bet on God's existence. Now, all this arises out of his sort of time. He was a a child of the Enlightenment. He was in the fertile uh, territory of Europe where they were beginning to question maybe for the first time or the first time openly in the history of, of, of the Western society, beginning to question whether or not you could have a reasoned and rational view of the world and a faith in God. Pascal originally or or eventually concluded that you you would never really be able to prove the existence of God on rational means alone. That will have to be accepted by faith. Nevertheless, it was the most rational thing that you could do to believe that God existed. He reasoned this because he says every person is participating in this great wager that has potential cost and potential gains. You're betting on the existence of God. You, for example, if you choose to follow God and then somehow, some way, when you die maybe, you find out that God doesn't exist, you may have some finite losses. You may have uh, uh, over, uh, sort, sort of uh, overlooked or, or foregone some temporary pleasures and luxuries, but your losses are limited. However, If you do not live for God and tragically die to find out that you were wrong, your losses are infinite and unrecoverable. Or if you want to look at it from the other way, if you choose to live for God, you receive still all the sort of common blessings of life that every other person has, the sunshine and the rain, the uh, satisfaction of a career, maybe family, friendships, those kinds of things, and you gain the eternal bliss of heaven. But if you live that way and, and uh, realize that, that uh, God doesn't exist once you die, your losses are fairly limited. But you cannot afford to be wrong. 
That's his real point in this whole thing. The stakes are high. They're very high. And you cannot afford to be wrong. There are eternal consequences. There are weighty uh, factors in your choices. You have to examine your life. You have to make a real honest assessment of where you are with God and an honest assessment of everything that hangs in the balance. Because eternal rewards far exceed any fleeting pleasures that may pass in the few decades you have here on this earth. Now, to some extent, that weightiness and that reality stands behind our passage this morning. It is a weighing out of whatever kind of temporal satisfaction you may find in the things that you cling to here versus the eternal rewards that are awaiting us in heaven. And all of this sort of comes to us in the story, a very familiar story if you're in the if you're a student of the Bible, the story of a rich young man or a rich young ruler, or some people call him a rich young seeker, someone who's coming to Jesus, asking spiritual questions. He was a seeker, but he was a young man in the prime of his life. He was, by, by the description that Matthew gives to us, he was young, probably in his mid to late 20s, obviously very affluent, He had sort of achieved a lot in his life. He had many, many possessions, we're told. But he also had lived a morally respectable life. He commanded respect from everyone who knew him. In fact, Luke tells us that he was a ruler, an arche uh, in the Greek. Uh, That was a word that Matthew had used back in Matthew chapter 9 to describe the ruler of a synagogue. So, So this young man had probably been tapped by the local community to provide leadership in his local synagogue. He was liked by everybody. He was praised by everyone. He was esteemed even as a young man by everyone. Everyone who knew him thought uh, thought well of him. And because of his wealth, he probably also was uh, privy to a good education and elevated social status. He was the ancient epitome of an influencer. He was the person that everyone idolized, the one that everyone wanted to know, everyone wanted to be connected to, everyone wanted to spend time with, everyone wanted to reach He was affluent, he was of the professional class, he was respectable in his community, he had all the things that everyone seemingly was striving for. And beyond all those things, the the thing that really makes this a compelling story at the end of the day is that he was a young man who seemed ready to make a commitment to Christ. He not only epitomized the young, affluent leader as community, he also embodies the individual who is seeking spiritual enlightenment. He is looking and, and asking sincere spiritual questions. And he approaches Jesus because he has come to sense some void. All the outward stuff that he had, all the riches all the accolades, all the praise, all the respect, all that other stuff still left him incomplete. Despite all that, he had a restlessness about him. He had been engaged since he was a child, it would seem, in the synagogue. He says he studied 
uh, in one of the other Gospels, he says he had studied the law some, from his childhood. He had st- strived to live out this life. As I said, he had received the affirmation of those around him, but in the midst of all that, he still lacked assurance. He still lacked hope. He looked over the horizon, and in spite of everything that he had and everything he had achieved, all he felt was something was missing. He knew that he didn't have a fulfilling relationship with God the way that he thought that he should. So although he had all this stuff, he had an unsettled conscience, and he comes to Jesus because he believes that this is the man who was going to answer the burning questions deep in his heart. And we see there in verse 16, he approaches Jesus and he gives him this critical question, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? What is the secret? What have I missed? I've tried everything. I've tried everything. I've tried to live for God. I tried to pray. I tried to be the person I'm supposed to be. I tried to be active in my synagogue. I've had all this outward success. None of it has really answered the deep, deep questions in my heart and mind. What is it that I've missed? He's asking Jesus. Well, Jesus responds to him here in a simple and profound way, a way that points him back to some critical components that he needed to understand if he's ever going to answer that question. The same components that you and I need to understand if we're going to ever really grasp the gospel. The elements that his, response, his disciples even respond to down in the second half of this section, all clarifying what the requirements are for eternal life. Listen to the entire passage as I read it for us this morning. Verse 16, we'll start again. Behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said, all these I've kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter Peter said in reply, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then shall we have? Jesus said, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. 
And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. There are a number of things that Jesus is pointing to here, some critical components. If you're going to have the answer to this man's question, if you're going to understand what is necessary for eternal life, you're going to have to understand all of these. First of all, beginning in verse 17, with the right authority. You're going to have to find the right authority to answer your question. If the question indeed is, what good deed do I need to do to enter into heaven? You're going to have to find the person who has the authority to answer that question, meaning not everyone does. Not every sort of uh, uh, you know, person on the street, not every person in your circle of influence, not everyone you read in the papers or online, not every person that has printed and published a book, not every person is going to have the answer to this question. In fact, there's only one, Jesus says. Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good, which of course is God. So he's directing this guy back to the single source who's going to be able to answer his question. If you have this most profound question of all, how do I enter into eternal life? Well, how do I have the assurance that when I die, I'm not going to be rejected? I'm not going to be cast out? If you're asking those kinds of questions and as urgent and as necessary as they are, the only person who's going to be able to answer them for you is God. Why is that? Well, for one thing, he's the only person who's good. Meaning that if you want someone to define goodness, you're going to have to go to the person who is good so that he can define it for you. I always sort of uh, comment whenever my wife and I might be watching something on TV and they have a Southerner represented. I always like to comment whether it's a true or not true accent. Do you do the same thing? She can tell you, I'm like, that ain't, that ain't Southern right there. I mean, you can, you can know it because you're in it. You live it, right? Well, this is, in a, in a more profound way, this is what he's saying about God. If you want to know anything about goodness and what good deeds you need to do, first and foremost, you need to recognize there's only one person that can answer goodness because there's only one good person. Everyone else is tainted. Everyone else is slanted. Everyone else is hedging. Everyone else is seeking to justify themselves. And so if you're going to ask that question, you're going to have to go to the person who knows what goodness is because at their very core, at the very center of their nature is absolute goodness, righteousness and holiness. And so to unravel the path of inheriting eternal life, to find the way to, to, to heaven, if you will, You're going to have to zero your focus in on the person who has, if you will, the authority and the character and the clarity to answer the question you're asking. No one else's opinion is going to do. Uh, No other human being that you inquire after, no other uh, person in your sphere of influence is going to be able to answer this question. Jesus is telling them this, just helping him understand. This is, this is a futile 
It's a futile search that you're in if you're just asking some other rabbi. If you're just here because I'm the next guy on the street, I'm the, 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 the new guy on the block, the most popular guy sort of at the moment, this no doubt probably had been a, a pursuit of this young man for some time. He probably had gone to various teachers along the way. He'd probably asked them very similar questions. And Jesus wants to clarify to him that before I even bother to answer this question, let's, let's just agree on one thing. There's only one place to get this answer. There's only one place you can go. This one question that you have, this burning question that you have, may have a zillion opinions. And there may have been pages and pages that have been written on it, but there's only one person that has the answer. And so this guy, for all of his success and for all of his devotion and for all of his respect, for all of his esteem, this guy who had de- dedicated his life to probably studying the Scriptures, at least trying to, to, to walk in accordance to them, for all of his best access to the best teachers, for all those other things, he still had these harbor, uh, uh, sort of harbored these unanswered questions. He still was looking for what he thought would be the elusive secret that would unlock all of this and asking Jesus basically what that is. What is the spiritual key that I'm yearning for? Jesus says, well, before we ever get to that, let's, let's talk about who's going to have the answer. It's God. And since it's God, it's going to come to you through His Word, which is basically the second critical component. He points them to there in verse 17. 18 and 19. You're going to have the right source. You need to have the right source. You also need to have the right standard, which is, of course, God's word. I mean, if you're seeking God's answer, the solution is remarkably simple. Read his word. What does his word say? Which is essentially what Jesus says to this guy. It's very straightforward. Keep the commandments. Or, or uh, what he says in Luke and in Mark is uh, you know the commandments. You know the answer. I mean, it's very, it's very obvious, or I'll be very obvious for you. You shouldn't be searching so hard. It's kind of like, you know, for me, sometimes I lose my keys and I'm turning the house over and sort of, you know, looking under all the mattresses and searching through all my pockets and all the closet and all those other things, and that key is sitting right on the kitchen counter the whole time, my wife tells me. He's telling this guy, you know, you know the answer. This isn't um, some sort of spiritual code that you have to crack. The answer is plainly in front of you in God's word. It doesn't take any sort of extraordinary uh, mystical secret to be discovered. And this is really profoundly simple in Jesus's mind and in his presentation in this gospel encounter, he doesn't have any sort of convoluted logic. He doesn't have any fanciful explanations. He doesn't have sort of dazzling illustrations or anything like that. It's just a direct appeal to the Word of God. How do you have eternal life? What does the Bible say? That's it. The commandments, just keep them. That's it. This is a an amazing, really, uh, illustration of our Savior's evangelistic techniques. 
the simplicity with which he put his trust in the Word of God and his contentment to do nothing but just to point this man back to the Word of God. As I said, doesn't, he doesn't even give any sort of elaborate explanation. Just what does the Word say? Do it. A profound and deep trust in God's Word and a straightforward appeal to it. This was Jesus' method. And here's the thing. It didn't work. At least from the outward side, right? I mean, this guy eventually walks away. He, he doesn't respond. He doesn't follow through. He doesn't make a commitment. He walks away without sort of making any sort of decision. So it raises the question, did Jesus miss an opportunity here? Did he do something wrong? Did he fail to communicate? Could he have done more than what he really did? No, he couldn't. He did everything he needed to do, which was point to the Word of God. What does the Word of God say? That's all. He essentially gave this guy the same message that he had heard over and over again. He just had never listened to it. What does the Word of God say? You know the Scripture. You know the commandments. Keep them. Of course, he would have known more than just the Ten Commandments. He would have known the entirety of the Old Testament. He was brought up in a Jewish society. He was a leader in the synagogue. He would have known passages like Leviticus 18, so you shall keep my laws and my judgments by which a man shall live if he does them. He knew that too. You keep my commandments and you'll live. That's plain and simple. Of course, it's not so simple because why? We don't keep the commandments. We don't keep the commandments. Nobody does. Nobody does even these basic things that Jesus is talking about here. You shall not murder. Well, maybe you pass that test. Shall not commit adultery. Hopefully you pass that test. Shall not steal. Shall not lie or bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And love your neighbor as yourself. Nobody can do that. Nobody can score a perfect score on that. And Jesus wasn't giving him this because he actually believed the guy could do that. He gave him that answer because the guy hadn't really gotten the message from that yet. He hadn't understood that you can live, you can have eternal life if you do those things. He's just, Jesus is just telling him exactly what the Scripture says. But in this is the simplicity that the man already had the answer that he was seeking. The Scripture had already spoken. The question of what good deed can I do to inherit eternal life? The answer is nothing. You can't even do the good deeds you've already been commanded to do. There's nothing you can do. There's no extra thing that you can do. There's no extra secret that you are going to find out. You just need to Listen to what the Scripture is already saying about you. See, this guy had only grasped half the message. He only understood half of the sort of theology. That he knew the rules, he knew the laws, but he didn't understand their purpose, and he hadn't really grasped why they were given in the first place. He didn't understand the message of sin. He didn't understand the message of his weakness. 
Jesus knew that before this guy could ever really enter into eternal life, he had to realize what God's Word was really communicating about him and about the rest of humanity. That if a person could keep the law and the commandments their entire life, they would have life, they would have eternal life. But the reality is, no one can. We're lawbreakers. We're unable to do it. We're not perfect. We're continuously violating God's commandments. We're continuously spurning His truth. We're continuously following, falling short. So, so the, at the end of the day, none of us deserve eternal life. That's the message. And Jesus probably understood as well that this young man had lived a somewhat respectable life. And so therefore, he had been praised. He had been patted on the back. He had been affirmed over and over again, which made it all the more difficult for him to see his failure, all the more difficult for him to realize the sort of adulterous lust that was flaming in his heart, the kind of greed that was uh, consuming him, the kind of hate that would sort of give root to murder, the kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, coveting of other people's things, all those commandments that are there in Scripture that reflect who he is, the kind of deception that he always allowed on his lips. Jesus knew that this guy still to this day had not accepted the message of God's Word, that whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles in just one point, as James 2.10 says, becomes guilty of all of it. So he redirects this man back to what he already had heard, to the message of God's Word. You're either going to accept it or you're not. You're either going to hear it or you're not. You're either going to understand and, and imbibe the message or you're not. And rather than sort of finding this guy on the seeker and, and uh, trying to find some sort of terms that would be acceptable to him, some sort of thing that he could add on to his um, already sort of religious and uh, and uh, moral life, some sort of little addendum that he could put on there to soothe his psychological needs, rather than lowering and getting rid of any kind of barriers that might keep him from being a follower, Jesus actually raises the barriers higher than they were previously. Instead of making it easy for him to believe and be saved, Jesus makes it impossible for him. In fact, at the end of the whole conversation, the disciples are left saying, well, then who can be saved? Who can be saved then? You see, Jesus is not interested in superficial commitments. He's never interested in superficial commitments. Throughout his entire ministry, he's incredibly discerning about people's lack of true repentance, their lack of true understanding in the gospel. He went to great lengths to eliminate superficial followers from among his disciples. He had no interest in affirming someone in a shallow commitment to God or a shallow understanding of God's word. He didn't want to lead someone to a commitment that was only half-baked or built on half an understanding of God's Word. And so he confronted this man with the reality of his sin, the impossibility of ever having eternal life in and of himself. He points him back to the commandments he had studied his whole life, 
And particularly the ones that were most visible, the first four that have to do with loving God, you know, sometimes is a little less evident in some people's lives. But when it comes to the people around you and loving people around you, that's very evident when you're supposed to love others as yourself. He does all of this because Jesus' gospel, His gospel had as one of its primary components the confrontation with people to help them understand that they are an offense to God. They are an offense to God. That is the message of the Scripture that this guy needed to grasp. That, that is really what the law was meant to communicate. Or another way to say this, just in simple terms, is that eternal life is not for those who are seeking eternal life. Eternal life is for those who are disgusted by their current life. They have reached the point where they see the sinfulness of who they are and the way they've been living and the way they've been thinking and the way they've been acting and they have decided that they are disgusted with that life. They see their sin. Which brings us really to the third critical component for seeking eternal life. In verse 20 and 21, you need to respond with the right humility. You need to respond with the right humility, which this man unfortunately doesn't do. He heard everything Jesus is saying. It sounded just like everything he had heard before. He, he says to him in verse 20, all these things I've kept, what do I still lack? Which is very similar to what I hear when I talk to people about the gospel sometimes. You, 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 you talk to them about their, their need for forgiveness and their sin and you talk to them about the grace of Christ and you say all that. And a common response that I hear is like, yeah, I've tried all that. I've tried all that. Yeah, I tried to, I tried to live for God. Yeah, I prayed and I tried all that and I did all those things and none of it worked. Well, give me something else. What else am I missing? This, this is what this guy's doing. Yeah, I've done all that. I've, 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 whatever you're saying, I've already tried that. It's really just another form of justifying himself. He, uh, he has not yet accepted or understood the true message of the law. And as I said, Jesus has absolutely no interest in leading this guy in some sort of superficial prayer, some sort of superficial commitment. He wants him to grasp this message and the guy's not grasping it. He wants him to accept the message of the law. He wants him to feel the sting in his heart of what the law says about him. Because the true response of the law isn't that I've kept all that. The true response of the law is I can't do that. This is what Paul says about the law later in Romans chapter 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law that every mouth may be shut and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight because through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So the right answer here isn't I've fulfilled all that. The right answer is just to place your hand over your mouth, just to shut your, shut your lips. 
to say, you know what, I, I can't do that. I can't be held accountable to that. The law, in other words, condemns. This is what Paul says in Romans 7. I once was alive apart from the law. Not that he was living outside of a Jewish community. Not that he was living in some sort of pagan society that was unaware of God's law. He was, he was saying that I once lived without a true understanding of God's law. I once lived apart from the law, but when the law came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, in other words, this commandment, which if you can keep it, can lead to eternal life, it proved to result in death to me. It wasn't now a hope of life. It was a source of, of death. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. In other words, Paul's saying, I, I, I was reading the law, I wasn't really understanding the law, but when I really understood the law, what happened in my life was the life I thought I had, the life I thought I was living, all the things in this world that may have been perceived to me to be fulfilling, all of a sudden those things were death. And, and, and suddenly there was a light shined into my life that was showing me all of the dark chambers of my heart, all of the deception that was in my heart, all of the rebellion that was in my heart, all of the pride that was in my heart, all of the rot and the decay that was hidden under the surface. I remember one time looking at a house we were thinking about buying and we walked in and it had been renovated. It was beautiful. I mean, it had all these sparkling new appliances and, you know, paint was fresh and all that other stuff looked like the deal of a century. But I decided to go into the crawl space. And you know what I found? Mold, rot, floor joists that were about to crumble, barely holding up anymore, critter nest, you know, all around, all kinds of filth and junk under there. There's no way I'm going to buy that thing. And this is what he's saying. Look, on the outside, I was living my life and everything was great and everything was sparkling. And then the law, this law came in. And what did the law do? The law started to show me, no, I'm not what I thought I was. I'm not so honest. I'm not so kind. I'm not so humble. I'm not so this. I'm not so that. It shined the light and suddenly this little bit of sin, I knew I had some imperfections, but this little bit of sin that I had suddenly became increasingly sinful. That's what happens when the law is understood. What we once thought was minor, what we th once thought was slight, becomes glaring, becomes overwhelming. And it's the truth. It's the truth, and it's the truth about us. It's the thing that we've been trying to hide from and deny. This is what Jesus wanted this guy to see. He wanted him to get to the place that Paul's talking about, where the law came in. And it wasn't so much that the law killed me as much as the law just simply showed I was already dead. I was already dead. You know, when I shine that light under that crawl space, it, the, 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 the light bulb... The flashlight, 
It didn't, it didn't ruin the floor joists and it didn't create the mold. It just showed what was already there. Jesus is trying to help this guy accept what the law says about him, which is that he deserves to die. That he deserves to die. You know, in some ways, this is the message of the gospel every time Jesus shared it. If you want to come after me, what do you have to do? You have to be willing to be pinned on a cross. You have to take up your cross. You have to deny yourself. You have to lay down your life. You have to renounce all that was that old, sinful, decaying, rotting self. That part that you've been trying to deny, that part that you've been trying to cover up, that part that you've been trying to put on your best sort of display in front of everyone else and impress them while underneath there's all this rot going on and you're just trying to deny it. Paul says in Galatians, through the law I died. I died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives within me. This is the demand of the gospel, that you come with that kind of humility, that you come with that kind of recognition of what your sin means for your life. And you come with the realization that whatever life you've been pursuing is never, ever going to provide you with the salvation that you're hoping for. Which is kind of the fourth element Jesus brings him to there in verse 22. Once he gives this sort of self-satisfied response, Jesus says, well, one thing you still lack, sell everything you possess and distribute it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. This, by the way, don't mistake this. This is not giving him another commandment. He's not saying, oh, there's, what, there's an 11th commandment. This is a secret commandment. You never read about it. He, he isn't implying either that if you want to become a Christian, you have to take some sort of vow of poverty. That would exclude all kinds of faithful uh, men, uh, believers throughout the church, men and women, Abraham, Isaac, David, Joanna, Joseph of Arimathea, all those were wealthy believers in the pages of Scripture. This is not some additional commandment. What Jesus is doing is trying to see if he's willing to abandon that old life. He basically wants to stop him in his tracks, which is the purpose of the law. He wants to bring him to an end of himself, to recognize his bankruptcy in his current life. And if the recitation of the law isn't going to bring him to that point, Jesus presents him with another challenge that hopefully will. Because as I said, he has no interest in bringing a superficial convert. He knows that if this guy is easily won, he'll be easily lost once the sort of fires of trial come. And so what he's doing is he's challenging this guy to reflect on what is essentially his self-reliance. You are trusting in your wealth. You're trusting in your accomplishments. You're trusting in your education. You can just insert whatever you want. But you've got to renounce that self-reliance. Well, unfortunately, this isn't the answer the guy wanted. He, he doesn't care for the response. And so 
he goes away, we're told, saddened. He was sorrowful because he had many possessions. The law had made him sorrowful. The gospel had made him sorrowful. Hearing the message of God had made him sorrowful, but not in the right kind of way. He wasn't sorrowful because of the way he had been living. He wasn't sorrowful because of what was being exposed in his heart. He was sorrowful because he wasn't getting the message he wanted. He wasn't getting the message that would affirm him. That he wasn't getting the message that would praise him. He wasn't getting the message that would allow him to stay in his pride. And so he's sorrowful, but he's not sorrowful at his sin. He's sorrowful maybe at the messenger. Perhaps he's sorrowful at Jesus. Perhaps he's sorrowful and maybe a little angry. He's sorrowful uh, for maybe his circumstances because he's going to have to sort of trudge on through the rest of his life with this emptiness inside. He has all these things that might have made him sorrowful, but he wasn't sorrowful about the right thing. He wasn't sorrowful about what was becoming, uh, becoming evident about his own heart. He wasn't sorrowful about that. What Jesus is basically trying to help him to do is he's trying to see if the guy hates his old life enough. If his sin was causing him enough grief that he would be willing to walk away from everything if necessary. basically asking him, as I said, in every, uh, what he asks others in every other gospel presentation, are you willing to forsake everything? Are you willing to forsake your possessions? Are you willing to forsake your friends? Are you willing to forsake your associations? Are you willing even to forsake your family, even your own life, to follow me? Or do you still make a claim on yourself? This is what the gospel requires. Total surrender from everything you've been clinging to so that you can cling to the only one that can save you. This is repentance, basically. This is what repentance is. It's a turning away from that entire life and turning completely to Christ so that He now is your only Your only hope. He's the essence of your hope. He's the essence of your treasure. He's the essence of your life. And so therefore, whatever brings uh, conflict with him, whatever comes into interference with him, you, you abandon it because he's everything. Listen, this isn't some sort of deep, uh, special commitment that he's making for this one guy to be some super disciple. This is what is required for every disciple of Christ. And if you don't like the message, if the message makes you angry or makes you sad and you turn away and walk away, you're in the same boat with this guy. Jesus isn't going to, he's not going to beg after you. He's not going to apologize. If you want the the secret answer, if you want the answer to life, this is it. And there is no other answer. Because there is no other source. And there is no other word. And there is no other standard. And there is no other life. This is it. 
And so that's the only message that Jesus had for him. It's the only message that Jesus had. He walks away and the disciples, having listened to all this, are, are struck. They are perplexed by this whole ordeal. But it gives Jesus a chance to, to touch on two other critical truths to get the full picture of what this gospel message is. We will have to wait for them next week. Listen, I want to say, if you're here today and somewhere along the way somebody gave you some superficial gospel, they told you, you know what, you, you, can, you can be your prideful self, you can, be your, you can be your sort of worldly self, you can be your adulterous self, you can be all those other things, you just say this little prayer, do this little thing, and you can be a disciple of Christ. I want to, I want to challenge you today. The answer's right in front of you. The message that you've heard your whole life is the message that you need. The reason that you still have restlessness inside is because you really have not heard the condemnation of the law, the condemnation of your life, and you haven't renounced it. If you want to know how to have eternal life, this is the way. This is the way. It means the renunciation of everything. But when you do that, you receive life. And Jesus says you receive it more abundantly. Here now and for eternity. If you're here today and the Lord is speaking to you and he is calling you to that life, I want to challenge you. When we're done here, I'll be down the hall to the right, our visitor reception. If you want to know about this eternal life, please come see me. Find any of our elders, any of us would be happy to help you understand exactly how you can have this gift that God has offered to you. Father, thank you for this. We're grateful for your word and its simple, straightforward message. Thank you that as you didn't hide your truth in some sort of far off place, but you gave it to us in the simple scripture. You revealed it. You revealed it to your people, Israel. You revealed it through your son, Jesus Christ. It was written for us in the scripture. It's been, it's been copied and sent all over the globe. We have it so accessible. But still, so many harden their hearts against it. I pray today for any who are here who have done that. I pray that they today would finally listen and would finally believe. Lord, for for us who share the gospel, I pray that you would help us as well, that we would share the whole gospel, that the entire message would be shared so that the people who are responding are responding, not with some superficial commitment, but with the real life transformation that is necessary for eternal life. We'll do that, Lord, by your strength, by your guidance and your power, working in us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.